When you recognize that the world needs to change, what will you do next? Will you look to others to initiate the change you seek? Or will you muster the courage to stand up and make the change you wish to see? In this episode, I speak to 2020 LinkedIn changemaker Yasmin Abdel-Majid, a Sudanese-Australian writer, broadcaster, and award-winning social advocate about her journey to make an impact and how to overcome our fear in order to stay true to our principles as well as ourselves. You can hold the fear in one hand and say, yeah, I see you fear and I get it and I'm going to and I'm and I'm going to feel you, but you don't have power over me. What has the power are my principles. And so I will come back to doing the actions that are in line with those. Yasmin is a globally sought-after advisor on issues of social justice focused on race, gender, and faith. She has traveled to 24 countries delivering keynotes on inclusive leadership, tackling unconscious bias, and achieving substantive change. Yasmin's internationally acclaimed TED Talk, What Does My Headscarf Mean to You?, has been viewed over 2 million times and was chosen as one of TED's top 10 ideas of 2015. So, ready to dive into what it takes to change the world? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Yasmin odell Majid, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Rebecca. I'm so excited to talk to you, not only about your fascinating background, but your insights on everything that you, you've learned through the journey of life. Obviously, your journey of life has been very rich in many ways, so much impact you've made in the world, but also a lot of challenges and difficulty. And you've seen both the best of human nature and the worst of it through your experiences. And we'll probably talk a little bit about that as well. But I would love to start with the start of your journey when you were just a teenager at age 16, making the decision to start Youth Without Borders and what a tremendous decision that was. What was the thing that compelled you to start that organization? And then also, what would you tell any other 16-year-old out in the world looking to make that kind of change? Thank you, Rebecca. It's funny because I think I look at 16-year-olds now and I'm like, gosh, you all have it sorted. You're all starting your your, your <laughs> businesses and your you've all become social media influencers and so on. So yeah. I wonder sometimes about my advice to 16-year-olds and how relevant it still is. But yeah, Youth Without Borders, we started it, gosh, let me let me backtrack a little bit. So my family is from Sudan and I was born in Sudan and my family migrated to a small-ish city in Australia called Brisbane. And we were like the second Sudanese family there. But what it meant was that my parents were always quite active in the community. And so like doing community work was kind of what we did on the weekend, was what we did all the time. And so being involved in the community and organising was something that was quite natural. The thing, though, that I hadn't quite figured out, you know, as a teenager was what was the thing that I was going to spend my time focusing on, right? I had volunteered for you know, youth homelessness things and wildlife organizations and fighting against poverty and all sorts of, like, I really, I was like, I know I want to do something. I know I want to have impact. Actually, it's a funny story why I decided that I wanted to have impact. I had been reading when I was about 13, I'd been reading a book um, about a character named Sabrina, the Teenage Witch. And Sabrina in this book, (laughs) you may have heard of her. Yes. She often used to get her spells wrong. And there was one particular episode 
she was really frustrated that there was nobody listening to her, no one paying attention to her in her family or with her friends or anything like that. And she thought, I bet you I could erase myself from existence and nobody would notice that I was gone. And so she cast the spell and she erased herself, but she accidentally erased herself totally from existence ever. But she could see what life was like if she had not existed. And her aunties had stopped talking to each other because she wasn't there to make the peace between them. And her best friend had started dating some really awful abusive guy and her boyfriend had gone to jail or something for, you know, dealing drugs or something illicit. And she realized that even though she didn't think that she was having an impact on the world around her, her very existence was changing the lives of the people that she engaged with. And so from that very young age, I was like, well, I want to make sure that my presence, my existence in the world has an impact, a positive impact on those around me. And so I was really like looking for the thing to engage in and the thing to like have an impact in. I ended up going to, you know, I volunteered and I'd signed up for every single possible thing that I could. I ended up at a conference for young people. It was there was a large conference called the Asia Pacific City Summit. And for the first time they had a youth component. And there was a hundred young people from around the Asia Pacific all coming together and talking about the awesome things that they were a part of. But what was fascinating about it was that there were lots of people who were doing similar work, but who were competing against one another. So you had like three different organizations working on you know, youth violence and a couple of different organizations working on mental health and a, you know five different organizations working on poverty prevention, blah, 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 blah. And they were all in competition. They were like, oh, you should give us the funding because we know what to do with it. Those people don't listen to them. Their model is all wrong. Or, you know, you should come volunteer for us because we're the best. And I remember thinking, like, aren't we all trying to help the same people here? Like, aren't we all trying to do the same work? Wouldn't it be better if rather than competing for scarce resources, we collaborated, we focused on pooling our energies? And I pitched this idea to the group the hundred young people, I remember I was on a boat. We were, it was part of the conference. It was like the last night of the conference and um, we were on a boat and everyone was kind of gathered in the cabin area. And I was like, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could set something up that was just about bringing us all together so we don't do the same problem as the adults and the grown-ups and we, we show that we could really create some change. And everyone looked at me and they were like, you're 16, mate. Do you have any idea what you, do you know how hard it is to start an organisation? And I was like, well, no, but there's nothing like telling a teenager that they can't do something to make them do it. Right. And so True story. Yeah. <laughs> and so I decided that I was going to set up Youth Without Borders and Youth Without Borders was going to be about getting people to work together, to collaborate, to create positive community impact. Right. And I managed to convince three out of the hundred people that it was an idea worth doing. And it ended up being, you know, we went through lots of ups and downs. And we were, I was 16, we were a bunch of teenagers. We had no idea really what we were doing. But I ended up running it for nine years. And it's, you know, it's an organization that continues today. We impacted hundreds and thousands of kids. We set up mobile libraries in Indonesia. We brought nine different organizations to work together to set up mobile libraries. We ran fundraising projects for schools in different parts of the world. We set up an engineering camp that was for kids from backgrounds who wouldn't usually go to university and we brought them in and we showed them what university could be like for them. And, you know, we genuinely changed the lives of many, many people who were our peers, really. The thing is, Youth Without Borders never became this huge blockbuster global organisation that brought in tons of money and 
change the world. But that was never our mission. Our mission was always how do we as grassroots average kids in the community change the lives of people in our community? And so if there is any advice that I could give to a 16-year-old is to not get swept up in the 30 under 30 lists and the big awards and this, that and the other. Because at the end of the day, what really has an impact is those moments where you are meeting new people in your community, where kids look at you and they're like, oh, I could be like that, where somebody emails you in 10 years time, as sometimes happens to me and says, hey, look, I was a 15 year old in that project that you did once. And because of what you said, I decided to do a journalism degree. And I'm now in this country and I'm doing reporting, or I ended up deciding to follow this path. And I'm really grateful because I would never have thought of doing that before. Or, you know, you gave me hope when it was never possible. Like, that's where the impact is. The impact so often can be simply by engaging with the people around you. Like you don't have to change the world. You're already having an impact on the people around you. So focusing on deepening that and making that as positive and as impactful as possible can be pretty magical. I love that. And so I think that's a great lesson, not only for the teenagers, like my daughter, I have a 14 year old and you've got a few things in common. She also wants to find ways to change the world. So I try to help her find that avenue where she can dedicate her time. But she also watches the new Sabrina, the Teenage Witch, so that she's brilliant, (laughs) dedicated to that show right now. Uh, But I mean, I think it's really important to think about the impact we're making just because of the fact that we're here, because we often take those things for granted. Mm. There's an importance to what we're doing out in the world, regardless of our age, Mm. um, you know, and so forth. But also thinking about what are the things that are holding us back from making the difference we could make, you know, like you mentioned, people saying, well, you're only 16, you know how hard it is to start an organization. And even all those things were true there. It is difficult to start a non-for-profit organization and pull people together and make significant change, but you're proof that it can happen. Right. And if I can build on that, one of the things that I'm proudest of actually is the fact that I will generally give anything a go. Like I am not somebody who is like a genius or a prodigy or, you know, beyond exceptionally talented at any one thing, right? There are people like that and those folks win Nobel Prizes and Fields Prizes and all sorts of things, right? And that's perfectly fine. But most of us aren't like that. And we compare ourselves to that, but that's not really that helpful. What I know is true, though, is that all of us can give things a go. All of us can give things a shot. The thing that I'm proud of is that even if I have a sense that I'm probably not going to be like the world's greatest at something, I'll give it a shot, right? So many of the things that I have done in my life that people are like, oh, wow, that's so, you've had you know, such an interesting, rich life. It's, it's mostly because I just decided to give it a go and then decided, you know what, I'm enjoying this. Let me try a little bit more. And I'm not going to set myself this huge, enormous expectation that I can only write if I'm going to win a man booker or that I can only ski if I'm going to win the Olympics. Like, why? Why set ourselves up for failure? And rather, why not just try things out, see how it goes? And then if it doesn't work out, then it's just a great story. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely value in our failures. And I think that we need to reframe what a failure really is or what it really means. Is it really failing if we've learned something valuable that sends us in a better direction? Mm. Um, Or is that just part of your path? You know, part of your path towards a better future, more impact that you can make wherever your passions lie, to your point. 
Right. I think that was really interesting. And I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I saw at least the synopsis of your book, You Must Be Layla. And what a great opportunity to show young girls, especially girls who are facing a lot of bias and a lot of judgment around them. I would love for you to tell a little bit about that story and kind of what inspired you to write it and the impact you're hoping to make. Mm. So, you know, just building on that idea of giving everything a go, I put, my first book was a memoir. And I, I mean, I studied engineering. I never thought that I'd be a writer. And I definitely never thought that I'd be a fiction writer. But when I was going on tour with the, with the memoir, my publishers saw me engaging with school students, with teenagers. They were like, you love telling stories to teenagers. Have you ever considered writing a book for them? And I was like, that's ridiculous. I know. And they were like, no, no, we'd like consider it. And I thought, you know what? All the books that changed my life, that really put me on a particular trajectory, that framed my way of thinking for a long time, so many of them I read as a young teenager. The books that I read when I was 13, 14, 15, they really gave me a lens through which to see the world. And, is, and I was like, well, that's such perfect age to have true impact, right? To have really transformative impact. So I decided to write a story kind of based off you know, the world that I grew up in and the experience that I had, but also kind of exploring some of the themes that adult version of me grapples with, but is easier to, well, perhaps there's, there's a luxury when you're dealing, when you're trying to grapple with it in a fiction sense. So Layla is this bubbly, adventurous, curious character who decides, you know, her mission, she wants to be a great adventurer. She wants to go on huge adventures. And she's a young, you know, like myself, a Sudanese Australian who's growing up in Brisbane. And she ends up getting a scholarship to this fancy private school in the middle of town. On the first day of school, though, she ends up getting into a fight with this kid who's racist, this kid named Peter. He says some racist things to her and she ends up headbutting him. And it just turns out that he is the chairman's son. So first day of school, she ends up getting suspended, put on probation, and her scholarship is at risk. And the only way that she can prove that she deserves to keep the scholarship is by entering and trying to win this robotics competition. And so the book is all about her trying to come up with an invention for this competition and the journey of like making new friends at a new school. And also, does she forgive this kid, Peter? who's done and said awful things. And Peter's also, he runs a team in the robotics competition. So it's also about her coming up against Peter again towards the end of the book. So, you know, it's about school, it's about friendship, it's about science and invention, but it's also about forgiveness and also about understanding a little bit around what kind of person do you want to be in the world and how do you deal with challenges that feel really, really unfair? Yeah, I think that's awesome more I think about this, I mean, obviously, a lot of my listeners aren't necessarily teenagers. A lot of them are, <laughs> are parents. Um, but even as leaders, like leaders out in the world, these types of stories, these types of narratives still play out in our workplaces, in our society. And we see it pretty prevalently, especially now during this interesting year we've had in 2020, mm. you know, has brought a lot of these issues up to light, looking at it from a child's perspective or a young person's perspective and thinking about the venture through life, 
how the impact of that could be or should be or how you overcome those kind of challenges or differences is a story that I think transcends ages and generations. I think it's a story that's relevant to all of us. Yeah. And I think it's been so fascinating because I was I was writing it with like a 13, 14 year old in mind. And I've had people of all sorts of ages read the book, engage with it. And I think you're right. The fact that it kind of is a story that whose themes are evergreen, yeah. but through the eyes of quite an innocent child, really. Because the other thing about Layla that always gets her into trouble, she says things with a bit of no filter. You know, she says what she's thinking. And that sometimes gets her into trouble. I mean, it's certainly what gets me into trouble often. <laughs> um, right. But that, that sense of no filter is kind of is refreshing almost as adults, I think. Yeah, I can say that I also lack a filter at times and have gotten myself in a little bit of hot water at times for my open and honest opinions and observations. Right. I think over time, it's gotten a little bit better. But I also have to say that, you know, just to be completely honest and transparent, I don't have the same type of challenges that you've had when you have spoken up in, in the absence of a filter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, um, <laughs> the way it plays out, sadly, is not always about what we say either, but it's about who says things. Yeah, for sure. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of the folks maybe in the US, um, I'm not sure if they're familiar with your story of what you went through in Australia in 2017. I almost hate to bring it up and I don't want to belabor that point because I'm sure you've talked about it ad nauseum. And it's also a very difficult thing that you've gone through. But you were put on the spot. You made a statement. Uh, folks reacted very strongly uh, to the point that uh, you made the decision to move mm. away from Australia to the UK and to take a different path, I suppose, to some extent. But it hasn't really backed you down, I think, from being what you call I think on your website, you even call yourself an agitator. Mm. Uh, so I think that really is kind of challenging the status quo and challenging those things that are detrimental to people in society and being able to be brave through the reactions that folks might have to that work that you do or the statements that you might make. And so what does it really take to overcome the fear of going against the grain, even when it's going to lead to great personal risk? Mm, great question. I think the fear is always there. You just learn how to manage it. So Sometimes I think part of what the what underlies the fear is the story that we put around it. I remember talking, you know, I, I did I've done a lot of therapy over the last few years, and um and I remember at one point something that I realized through talking to my therapist was that not only did I find myself being isolated by some of the things that were happening, was that I told myself a story of being isolated, right? So the story that was happening in my head is because of this thing that happened or maybe because of something I might say, you know, I will lose all my friends, I'll lose all my work, all of this stuff will happen. And whether or not it's true or not, the, the fear associated with the story that we tell ourselves is so strong and so crippling that we lose our ability to manage it. And so part of it for me has been, I think, I don't know if that makes much sense, but part of it for me has been understanding and being very clear-eyed about what I'm risking, but also about what matters to me. And sometimes what I fear I'm risking isn't actually what matters. So 
sometimes I will know that I'll get put now, you know, I'll be like, I know I'll get a lot of pushback from X, Y, Z, but I'm now in a position where I know that the opinions of those particular people say are not what defines how I feel about myself, are not what define who I am. Like my sense of self is separate from what others may think of me. And that's a hard thing. But I think if going through a really terrible, awful public experience teaches you anything, it can teach you that you do not have to be defined by the opinions of others. It can have no material, but it can suck. I mean, we're humans, we're social creatures, we want people to like us. But I've become much better at deciding who's, whose opinion I care about, who do I actually care about, whether they like me or not, because the reality is not everyone's going to like me. So whose opinion do I actually care about? And also remembering that people generally are super fickle. People's memories are super short, especially the collective memory is super short. And so if I define myself and what I do based on what everybody else thinks I should or shouldn't do, I'm just going to end up being a leaf in the wind, right? I'm never really going to, to kind of have much impact. Rather, what I've learned is how do I become super clear about what it, what, what is my true north? What is the thing I really care about? What am I here on this earth to do? And just coming back to that point again and again. And when things get really scary, come back to what is it that drives me? What is my value? For me personally, it's about justice. For me personally, it's about making sure that I operate with integrity, that I have justice for communities at the core of everything that I do. But also, you know, my faith is a big part of how I move through the world. So how am I doing things in line with my faith? And my faith gives people the benefit of the doubt. My faith encourages me to be merciful and to be kind and to try to be the bigger person. Like these are things my faith encourages. So how do I come back to those principles? And I think if you have a sense of what your principles are and you can draw strength from those principles, then you can hold the fear in one hand and say, yeah, I see you fear and I get it and I'm going to, and I'm, and I'm going to feel you, but you don't have power over me. What has the power? are my principles. And so I will come back to doing the actions that are in line with those. Such a powerful lesson. I think there's so many folks with the political division that we're experiencing feel that they should hold back from expressing their values or their beliefs about things that are very important to them because they're concerned about the consequences. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. you know, or just to put it plainly, people are jerks. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> people aren't yeah. nice. Holding people back from giving those opinions or those things that are important or those things that add to the public dialogue, the things that probably reinforce or mirror opinions of other people that are also holding back because of fear. I mean, I think it's important. It's important for us to kind of come back together and respect the fact that people have different opinions and viewpoints that doesn't necessarily make us enemies. It doesn't necessarily mean that anyone is the bad. It just means that people are different with different perspectives. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of us could benefit from learning and, and using at the moment. The other thing I'll add to that is I think of my energy as like a, bo a box of matchsticks, right? Hmm. And engaging with any 
any sort of conversation, discussion, whatever's hot at the time. That's using a match. Every time I engage, I use a match. And sometimes you run out of matches on things that aren't actually that important. And so I always think, like, save your matches, save your energy for the things that truly matter. It's just another way of saying pick your battles. But, like, decide, start to be more strategic about where you put your energy because not everything deserves your energy. Not everything deserves your engagement. So be really specific and discerning about, is this conversation that I'm going to, like, this person has put out some energy. Is this conversation one where this match will actually have an impact? Or is it just going to end up being nothing and it's going to be wasted and we're both going to end up exhausted and spent and nothing's changed. Mm. Um, there's so much noise and so much heat and so much smoke. It's sometimes hard to tell, but I think definitely for me, my level of engagement with stuff on social media is very different to how I engage with people personally and on a one-to-one level. One of my favorite people to listen to in this time is unusually um, a couples counselor named Esther Perel, which many of your listeners may have already heard of. Um, and she often talks about like the value of human connection, but also about the importance of like protecting our own space and, and putting boundaries up because, you know, we're not able to, to be useful to the world unless we are healthy ourselves. And, you know, I think the year that we have had is one that has drained all of us in so many ways that when I don't think many of us are our best selves. Um, and so finding ways to like create the conditions for success um, by looking after ourselves, by looking after the people that we care about, by trying to do things so that we are the best versions of ourselves, so that when we engage in these conversations, it's not from a place of grief and tiredness and fatigue, but from a place of like, energy and caring I think we're still working through that and so sometimes I choose not to have conversations until I'm in you know it's like with my partner sometimes I'm like you know what darling if we have this conversation right now it's not going to end well for either of us so let's just take the time recoup re-energize and come back to this conversation when we both feel like we can have it in a way that's the best for both of us and I think understanding that taking space and then coming back it's not failure, but it's about respecting the reality. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And I was sharing with you before we started recording that sometimes I want to tell my husband, keep me off of social media for a while. <laughs> and I think it's really like, put my matches away for me, will you? <laughs> yeah. Because really, we do start to get engaged. And, and I think one of the things that we can do is just acknowledge that that is just part of our human nature is we mm. have our own values and beliefs that we hold dear. And when someone says something or does something that's in contrast to that or feels threatening to that belief or value that we have, we want to react to it. It's for human nature. But that doesn't mean that we can't take control of that human nature and bring ourselves back and respond in a way that's more healthy for us and for other people. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So let's think about going forward. 2020 has been a crazy, disruptive mad year. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we talked about, you know, there's a whole bunch of people that would love to think that there's a comfort to a more normal 2021, that we'll get through 2020 and we'll put all the memes about this being a terrible year behind us. And then 2020 will magically happen and all of it will be better. <laughs> and and it's, there probably would be a lot of comfort in that, but we have to ask ourselves, is there a lot of reality in that? So, mm-hmm. and I don't expect you to have an answer to that 
question about, you know, you don't have a crystal ball. It's hard to predict the future and, and those kind of things. But, um, but what do you think that we can learn from what we've experienced over the last year in particular? And how is that going to help us shape something better for us in the future? Mm-hmm. I mean, I am one of these people that really hopes that once the clock ticks over to 2021, it's all going to be fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm definitely on that train because I'm somebody who thrives by being able to have control over things, control over my life and my finances and my future. And like all of that disappeared in 2020. And, you know, I'm working on getting those things back. But I think for a lot of us, we had to deal with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of prolonged uncertainty, which is a tough thing, I think, for human beings, um, because I know I'm not the only one who likes a sense of control. I think a lot of us are dealing with grief and loss. Um, You know, some of us have lost our family. Some of us have lost friends. Some of us have simply lost hopes and dreams for the future. I know so many people who whose weddings had to be moved and who, you know, had great plans for the year, started at a new university, whatever, and the plans that they had were lost. And so there's definitely grief in all of that. The flip side, and maybe it's not the flip side, maybe it's not silver lining, but what came alongside that was also a lot of change. And in change, there is opportunity. And that opportunity does not overshadow the loss and the grief and the uncertainty But I think it is worth being acknowledged because, I mean, we saw huge stimulus packages across the world, across developed nations, across societies where governments pumped money into the economies in order to keep businesses and people afloat. And all of a sudden, it's possible to, you're like, oh, I didn't know there was a magic money tree. Everyone told me that there wasn't a magic money tree, but all of a sudden there is a magic money tree to put billions and billions of dollars into the economy. That's interesting. That shows us that there's an opportunity for perhaps a different way of thinking about how we support people in our economies. I think that, you know, there's been really interesting changes in, you know, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movements brought the Black Lives Matter movement way back into the public conversation. Certainly even in the UK, here where I'm based, there have been ripples that have continued playing out. And I think that's really fascinating as well because the kinds of conversations that people are having in all sorts of different kinds of organisations are, again, opportunities. I don't know what 2021 holds, but what I do know is that, and this may be not the answer that people are looking for, but what I will say is that whenever we get back to a world that is quote-unquote normal, The experience of trauma doesn't happen while you're experiencing something, but plays out once that trauma's over. I mean, I'm not a psychologist um, or a therapist or anyone qualified, but I certainly know that this was my personal experience. And I just have a spidey sense that once things go to quote unquote normal again, what we're going to have to do as a collective is deal with the year that we've had as a collective, with the experience that we've had. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think that being kind to ourselves is so important. Accepting that things, for example, when we went into lockdown here in the UK, I instantly set up an organization, like a collective with a group of friends called the Portal Collective. And we're like, this is a great moment for transition and we're going to do all these things and it's going to be amazing. We like wrote two articles and did one virtual event and and we're, we're exhausted, right? Because we're, because it's an exhausting year because yes, there is opportunity, but all of us are like 
super drained and dealing with all sorts of things in our own worlds. And so I think that even though there is major opportunity, I think it's okay for us to also just take it slow. And I, I've said this a couple of times in, you know, in this interview, but having patience with ourselves and allowing us to accept that this is a collective trauma that we've all gone through and it's okay, whatever we're going through emotionally is okay and is valid, but also we don't have to do it alone. And if we do it right, another thing that can happen is a sense of coming together around the experiences and being like, you know what, the one thing that every single person has experienced in 2020 is disruption due to COVID. Like that's something that we share, no matter what our political opinions, no matter what, you know, our race or gender or whatever, we have shared a collective sense of loss and uncertainty and disruption because of 2020. That's something that, you know, if we can start from that collective experience and kind of build out, then perhaps that's a place for us to build out a conversation and hopefully some sort of collective healing. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I mean, we think about our shared experiences. No matter who you talk to, wherever they are in the world, I automatically understand that the pandemic has impacted them in some way. I may mm-hmm. not understand the full breadth of that impact, but I know it's impacted them. I know it's always a topic of conversation that this is happening. And it will be for some time. We can anticipate it will be into 2021. But the really interesting point you bring up about the importance of thinking about our shared experiences and having that be an opportunity that brings us together. Because the reality is, too, beyond just some of those shared experiences, We hope that uncovers, or I personally hope that uncovers some of our shared values, regardless Mm. of where you live, regardless of your faith, regardless of your political views. There are many shared values that many of us have that we sometimes don't acknowledge or don't use those opportunities to bring us together on the importance of those particular shared values. So I hope that's an opportunity for us to heal. Here's hoping. 2021 and beyond. Here's hoping. Yeah, (laughs) here's hoping. So let's say, you know, obviously we've already established you don't have any solid answers for 2021, (laughs) nor nor do the rest of us for that matter. Um, But let's think about the future a little bit more. So is there anything in particular that concerns you about the future? I, I mean, it's a little bit linked to what we were just talking about but I worry sometimes about the lack of shared reality Mm. I used to work on oil and gas rigs and so the people that I worked with were from very different worlds to me and so it meant that I always had a connection to a world that was very different to my own and I really valued that I'm now someone who spends you know who's a freelancer who writes and broadcasts and does sort of advocacy work for a living And so I'm in a very different world and I often wonder what happened to the worlds that I was a part of before? How have they changed? It's very difficult for me to connect to those worlds um, without, you know, the the day-to-day job. And But what I do know is that, like, when I was in that world, I lived in a different reality to somebody who has the kind of job that I have now. And that lack of shared reality makes it really difficult to build societies around. And I don't think like, and I mean this, like it's not not just in the United States, but across the globe, leaders, they're not building visions based of collective ideas, based of values that include people, rather they're based of values that exclude people. And that makes me sad because I know where that ends up. 
And it doesn't end up in a society that's happy. It doesn't end up in a group of people that have the best mental health that are thriving because that is not, I mean, it never has historically been um, the way you create a really inclusive and vibrant society. So that, that worries me a little bit. The other thing that I have no control over, and I'm, I mean, I used to work on oil and gas rigs, but I worry a bit about the climate. I don't know much about climate change, but I know that the world that I live in is changing a lot and I can see it. And I'm not really sure where the will for those things to change at a structural level is going to come from. I mean, I look at school kids protesting about climate change and so on, and I think, you know, what world are we passing on? to them. I don't really know, but I, I I suppose at a really macro level, ultimately at a macro, macro level, I worry that the folks across the world in power are more interested in maintaining power than in doing the responsible thing with it. And that makes me really sad. And it makes me wonder what the world is going to look like in 10 or 20 or 30 years time. But I mean, and there always has to be a but, right? Because I, I can't just leave people with a list, with a litany of, you know, of terrible things about the world. But I know that there's a lot of people who are working against that. I know that there are a lot of people who are interested in building a world that works for all of us. And so I guess that's what I hold on to. I hold on to the fact that there are people working really, really, really hard, and friends included, who aren't just going to let things happen lying down. Yeah, absolutely. I think you brought up some really important points there, one around the importance and the responsibility around leadership. The Spider-Man quote comes up on this show probably more than it should, but with great power comes great responsibility. But <laughs> there's so much truth to that is, mm. you know, if you're mm. in a position of leadership, in a position of power, especially at the global scale or even at a national scale, you have a responsibility to lead the people in the right direction. And this might even go back to your statement around alternate realities and truth. What direction are you leading the people? Are you leading the people in a place that leads to a better, more stable, more just society? And if not, what questions should you be asking of yourself about the responsibility of your position? I think that's such a relevant question for so many people in power today. Mm -hmm. In organizations, in governments across the world, what responsibility will you take to make sure you're leading people in a direction that leads us all in a better place? Such a critically important question. But I also wasn't going to end the show in a negative place, you know, we're doom and gloom and so forth. But you did mention <laughs> one of the things that I think was good is, you know, that hey, there are people out there working on these hard, heavy, difficult problems, mm. people that are willing to speak up against the grain, much like yourself, but willing to speak up and say, you know what, this is wrong. I see a better future ahead of us this is how I see you know, us getting there and starting that important dialogue or even just taking actions in order to rectify mm. that. If you think about the environmental example, mm. of course, you've got Greta Thunberg, a young woman, much like when you were a young woman who wanted to make a difference, she was a young woman that stepped up on the global stage at the UN mm. as a teenager and made these very bold statements about this is the future I want for me and my generation and generations to follow. Mm. Um, the courage that that takes is tremendous and the mm. amount of scrutiny she's received just blows my mind. But that shouldn't hold us back from making those differences in those really impactful places that we're talking about in, in the world. But what else gives you optimism for the future? Um, 
what else gives me optimism? I think the optimism that I find comes in small moments. It's often in, you know, when I see somebody change their mind about something or when I learn about, or when I, you know, watch a new show and I find that it's got a really diverse cast and they gave a chance to somebody who, you know, may have been an underrepresented voice and they've created something incredible or, you know, when I meet little kids and they're so much more informed than I ever was at that age. And I think, oh, like, it can be all right, you know. And and to be honest, the other thing that really, really gives me hope is looking backwards, is saying, oh, we are in a better place than we were, certainly in, like, modern history. Like, there are more women in positions of power than there were 50 years ago. There is a world in the UK, for example, where the idea of marriage can be different or the idea of gender roles can be challenged and people are becoming more accustomed to that. I think it's really helpful to think about the shoulders that we stand on and that we are building upon and to kind of think of ourselves as parts of, you know, the line of of people passing a baton on in history um, rather than thinking of ourselves as a discrete moment in time you know, the world will continue to exist after us and and was existing before us and and we're just doing our bit. I don't know, taking that perspective a little bit always makes me a little bit more hopeful. And what a great way to to center ourselves amongst the chaos. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So that was a great optimistic place to end. So Yasmin Abdel-Majid, this has been an amazing conversation, inspiring and hopeful. And folks, I'm going to put a link out uh, in the episode notes to Yasmin's website if you'd like to go visit and learn more about the amazing work that she does and the books that she's written and actually all the things that she's done to make a big difference in the world. So Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Rebecca. Yasmin's story is amazingly unique and tremendously inspiring. Starting at only 16 years old, she recognized an opportunity to bring people together to make a difference and made the decision to ask a simple question. What if we decided to work together to make the change we want to see in the world? This led her on a journey of finding hope, addressing injustice, and working with others to influence real change. While her journey is unique, there is something we can all learn about what brought her through it. Initiative. Courage and an intense purpose to make a difference. To start this journey, it only took a decision to do something and the fortitude to stick with it. This was the catalyst that created amazing opportunities and also helped her to overcome intense public criticism. So yes, her journey was imperfect, bringing both highs and crushing lows. But it was a journey that has been rich with meaning and that aligns to her principles and one that ultimately does make a difference in this world. Of course. At only 29 years old, Yasmin's journey is far from over. So, what about your journey? What will your story be? What is the difference you want to make in the world? And what is holding you back from being a part of that change? That question in the back of your head that has been nagging you for some time. Why not ask it? Don't for one minute think you can't or shouldn't. Putting yourself out there does take courage, but you will never know the difference you can make if you don't try. So, go on. Go help shape the future. 
To learn more about Yasmin Abdelmajid and her inspiring journey, go to yasminam.com. That's Y-A-S-S-M-I-N-A-M.com. I want to hear the question you'd like to ask the world. Join the conversation on Twitter at Humans Now and Then and use the hashtag, Here's My Question. Before you go, make sure to subscribe to Humans Now and Then to stay up to date on all of the amazing conversations coming soon. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.